Freetopia Urgently optimistic discussions with experts about the technological risks and opportunities shaping our future. Algorithms will pay humans and control humans and not the other way around. Now, if you think about it, we already have systems that are human-invented but control humans and not the other way around. The nation-state, no one controls the U.S. Trump doesn't control the U.S. No single human controls the U.S. No single institute controls the U.S. However, there is such a thing as the U.S. because we all believe in it. Right? God controls all of us despite it not existing. Welcome to Pyrtopia. This is Nima, and that was the voice of Elad Verbin. Elad is a computer scientist turned venture capitalist, and his firm focuses on algorithmic innovation. He always likes to say if it doesn't fail or if there's no risk of technical failure, they won't fund it. In this episode, we're going to go really deep and also really wide. We talk about lots of things that Elad is passionate about, the focus and thesis of his firm. And then we wrap up with really interesting discussions around DAOs, algorithms paying humans, as uh, you probably heard in the intro, and it gets really interesting. Just a quick comment about the quality of this episode. Really sorry, unfortunately, this was the second episode that we've ever recorded and we didn't really know failures could happen. Uh, our micro SD card for the recorder just uh, went blank. There was nothing on it. So the audio you're hearing is the post-processed heavily AI filtered version of our backup microphone, which I'm glad we had. That said, thank you for staying with us and see you next week. Pretopia.fm Hey, Vlad. Hey, good to see you again. You too. So we were having this conversation as we were just before the podcast. It's been a long journey for you for the last two years you've been working on this. And uh, you have a very strong thesis for your fund, right? And the thesis for the fund is that you want to look at algorithmic innovation. Would you Mm -hmm. like to explain to our audience what that means? Yes. So... My background in algorithms starts 15 or 20 years ago uh, in academia and kind of my thesis for how technology, for, for the utopian parts of technology is just develop really good science and generally good things will happen. Bad things will happen too, but more good things will happen. So what we focus on in the fund is algorithmic innovation and, and the magical thing to me about, to us about algorithms is that they are, um, algorithms are pieces of code, right, that have a certain logic that you can run, and they are infinitely reproducible. You can copy-paste the code of an algorithm and deploy it anywhere in the world, and they have zero unit cost. Beyond CPU time, um, the, the cost of actually deploying an algorithm is basically zero. This means that they have, they share uh, the properties of some of the best technologies that humanity have uh, invented, uh, be it um, uh, the, you know the the printing press or um, or money or religion or the legal system, in that they are very very easy to copy and to deploy throughout the place, and they this makes them so powerful. So, so it's a very very interesting comparison that you make. You compare algorithms to belief systems. 
And in many ways, you could actually see a lot of similarities. So if you were to think about the Abrahamic religions, you could see heuristics, which is like one step away from algorithms, and the way they replicate a symbol. Are you seeing like very strong, uh, what do I say, trends in the larger VC ecosystem where you see other people thinking about things similar? Uh, or is it that you are just unique in the way that you're thinking about funding startups? So if you think of the VC ecosystem, it, it got, so VC originally was a very small, simply small, but it was a very, very small portion of uh, private equity, really a spin out of private equity, which focused on developing technology, right? The early funding of uh, Google, if you want, and stuff like that. And it spread the same model of VC funding, which is uh, I buy equity for money and I support the company in order to make it succeed has spread to much more than what it was originally doing. So now you have consumer goods, uh, VCs, and you know, lots of VCs doing all kinds of stuff. But in the basis there are, we count ourselves as part of the technological VCs. And those I would think, I would say split into two kinds, the electrons over atoms people and the atoms over electrons. So for atoms over electrons, you could have lax capital. Um, who really take it serious, they invest in satellites, they invest in drones, they invest in things that have a really physical presence in the world, and they strongly believe in atoms over electrons. Uh, Josh, um, Josh, I forgot his last name. Uh, Josh Wolf. Josh Wolf, exactly. Josh Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Josh Wolf has a really amazing investment thesis video online where he explains the, electrons, uh, the atoms over electrons story really strongly. Right? And we are part of the more electrons over atoms story, which is the more um, digital collective and uh, I think Blue Yard to some extent and uh, Blue Yard that's both really. But, uh, you know, A16Z and the USV, the digital kind of, uh, kind of VCs that have, that believe that electrons are more powerful than atoms in the leverage they give over money invested. And we have many colleagues in this, so I wouldn't say that we're alone in the battle, but I think we need all the help we can get because if you look at, I think if you look at the last 50 years, it's totally a story of, I don't want to take scams, but uh, it's really a story of electrons beating atoms and slowly the world is becoming more and more represented in electrons. Given you mentioned this, uh, there is this general thesis of software eating the world. So for example, if you look at SDRs, so that is literally the shift in hardware electronics becoming software, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is pretty much the thesis which you are describing. If you're thinking of uh, additive manufacture or anything in that sense, which you are thinking about. When you describe you as being LEC, are you guys thinking about those things? Or are you just thinking about, okay, we just look at the algorithms that allow it. So, so say for example, the way I would describe this is like, would you be investing in IP course versus a startup that builds SDRs? That would be the kind of question I would ask. Sorry, can you, so, uh, uh, what's SDRs and what's IP course? Okay, software-defined radios, for example, mm -hmm. right? So you have both the analog and the digital part on the RF part, and you deploy the logic onto it so you can do whatever you want. IP logic, IP course is essentially you can actually have whatever your logic, you deploy it on either silica or programmable logic, right? That's like one physical instantiation, mm -hmm. that is pure logic. So you could, you know, where do you place yourself? Do you think yourself closer to 
uh, you know, material or are you just going to be the true virtual existence kind of guys? So let me take a step back. Uh, software is eating the world is, is I, I agree with this thesis, but I think it doesn't go far enough. I would say that algorithms are eating the world in the sense that if you look at many of the major developments that enable technology is, it, is it's almost always algorithmic. So the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin white paper is a very much algorithmic white paper of, of my people, of theoretical computer scientists. It's, uh, it's mixing um, game theory, algorithmic game theory, with a very good understanding of economics, with cryptography, uh, with distributed systems. There's a really interesting um, a computer science typology of, of the five streams that culminate in the Bitcoin paper. And the Bitcoin paper is a story of algorithms eating the world. The deep learning story that took us from zero in terms of, uh, of computer vision uh, to, you know, to basically a hundred is a story of algorithms eating the world. There's many more databases and Google and Skype and voice over IP um, are all in, uh, stories of algorithms eating the world. And I think we'll see more and more. I think we'll see more and more of this. So, uh, so going back, I, I think I'm seeing a future of much more completely uh, separate from material uh, electronics. Uh, if you think about it, and uh, you know, I think Trent uh, McConaughey talks about this a lot, right? Eventually we're going to be brains, not brains in a jar, but rather brains. Emulations. Uh, yeah, brains captured or simulated digitally. I don't know if I. That's a word that's being used, and that's mm -hmm. the term for it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily, I don't know what to think about that, mm -hmm. but it, it does fit at least thematically with the story I'm seeing, which is slowly the entire world is becoming digitalized. So simulations, for example, uh, material science simulations, liquid simulation, fluid dynamic simulations, are something that not that many people are talking about, but they've, got, they've gotten very, very strong recently. Uh, part of this is because of the algorithmics, partly because of cloud, uh, but they are slowly becoming digital representations of the world. So, you know, you kind of, I'm sorry to be, uh, you know, challenging you. So this is like part oh, of the thesis. Please do. So, uh, you know, uh, all the topics that you describe have been somewhat involved in all these things over the time. So. If you just take the case of deep learning, just for example, right? Uh, it only happens that deep learning was possible because of other innovations that were in the hardware space and the data being available and other things. So if I were a skeptic, I'm just being a skeptic in the room for the rest of the people who are not involved in this conversation right now. It's like if I were listening to this, I would have thought, you know, well, this thesis is interesting. However, there's something that's not being you know, considered. The whole deep learning was possible for multiple reasons. This is like a third order impact of a bunch of other things that are more or less physical that actually happened that allowed us to do this. So the, the progression in semiconductors that actually allowed us to collect data, that allowed us to actually have cheaper storage, that allowed us to have you know, faster compute, that allowed us to have you know, cheaper compute, that allowed us to actually have deep learning viable at this moment in time. So to me, as a, you know, if I put the skeptic's hat on and I go, each of the different ones you describe actually has like a component that's underlying, which is more atoms, mm -hmm. and that helps the electrons, of, you know, succeed. So, Am I allowed to say that? Oh, I absolutely. I just wouldn't agree with you. Um, I think that if it wasn't CPUs that got stronger, but rather uh, logistics that got stronger, or shipping, or uh, fuel innovation, uh, then we would have different different types of algorithms 
that are taking over and becoming all powerful. I think the story is that some atom stuff or some, some other stuff gets developed and then you start getting stronger and stronger algorithms. And the amazing thing about algorithms is that they have a feedback effect. Once they get stronger, they get yet stronger because they're so easy to copy. And they just require a researcher that sits in a basement with a, as the joke goes, with a, um, with a pen and paper in a trash can and just works on it and makes them stronger and stronger. They go through these rapid innovation cycles. Um, so I think you would, you'll see, if I look back at the history of technology, what I'm seeing as the driver is algorithmic innovation and then other stuff that enables it. And every time you get an unlock from the atoms, you get much more uh, bang for buck from the algorithms that scale so well because you just need to copy them, just need to deploy them. And I see this, um, this trend continuing as stronger and stronger. This like, uh, I watched the last episode of Chernobyl yesterday and there's this, there's the feedback effect of atomic reactions where it just gets stronger and stronger because of all of the, um, you know, all of the uh, fission that, that yeah. happens. Yeah. It almost looks like this. Once an algorithmic innovation happens like Bitcoin, the pattern gets copied and gets stronger and stronger and you get ICOs and you get Ethereum and you get ICOs. Only in a few years. You don't see no, this kind of innovation a, in other... Yeah, in other technologies. There's a very important thing that you are kind of describing is super important. The reason that happens is you have critical mass, right? That's why fission is stable, right? Yeah. Similarly, the way I would describe this, and if you're going back to the thesis, is we need to have the ability to have in the atom space to allow this kind of critical mass to actually allow this to happen, right? Otherwise, you know, it can just dissipate itself out. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to start a struggle of atoms versus electrons. In yeah. this state of humanity, both are important. Mm. I do think that as time goes on, the electrons become more and more important and more able to subsist by themselves and to kind of feed back onto themselves. It's a good question. So I, I wanted to bridge the conversation to uh, two of, I think, very permanent uh, cornerstones of your thesis that are aligned with the discussions that we want to have on the podcast. Um, I, I have a feeling that you believe that lots of our socioeconomic and political problems, they have a technological solution. And regardless of them coming from bits or atoms, um, there are these two concepts. One is uh, free-ranging algorithms, and the second one is government technology in general and algorithmic redistribution. And both of these, in a way, uh, they rely on uh, DAOs and secure multi-party computation as foundational technologies. And um, we wanted to first have a short discussion between you and Anish about this core technology and then go into exploring uh, how they could really impact and solve problems. And um, I, I, I really want us to uh, keep in mind that uh, what, for me, what's really interesting about venture capitalists compared to armchair philosophers or <laughs> scientists research is that you guys only make money if your bets actually pay up. Like you, skin in the game. Yeah, you really have a skin in the game, and I, I think that that's a fair comparison uh, as a former potential armchair philosopher. So, uh, <laughs> I, I would I would rather uh, at least put my bets. Uh, where you know venture capitalists are seeing technologies you know coming in ten or fifteen years, there's a much higher chance that uh, what you are talking about now 
really impacting our lives compared to, sorry to philosophers, but what they're talking about, like super intelligence and rogue AI, they're interesting discussions. But what's a much larger problem that could be solved already today with almost like no breakthrough technologies and just applying what we know is free-ranging algorithms and, and algorithmic redistribution. How could we take these concepts and, and remake our governments in the way that we are already running the experiments that call like blockchain? So Anish, I'll hand it over to you. It would be interesting to uh, explain uh, you know, the concept of secure multi-party computation and also zero knowledge, and then use that to continue the discussion to these two topics. Should I reply for, sure. to that for a second? Yes, so my thoughts about this are basically inspired by the past. So a lot of the social evolutions, a lot of the social problems of the past have been solved or the society has been changed by technological, by technological, uh, um, innovation. Uh, I think the printing press might be the most kind of classic example. So you go to railroads and steam technology and nuclear technology and, uh, you know, in the digital revolution and there's, uh, you know, then you go to religion and govern governments and the democracy and, and so on and the Hammurabi's laws. Um, but really the printing press, I think, is like the one clean, clean, uh, Example, right? Uh, someone finds out really a, a stream of people, you know, a long line of people find out how to improve the unit economics of replicating words, of replicating in, ink on paper, and all of a sudden you get positivism and communications and, and so on. And the, the spread, the exponential spread of knowledge, and like a, this kind of fission type uh, high, feedback high, effect. High fidelity, very high fidelity. Mm -hmm. High fidelity replication at a very low cost. Yes. Uh, and I think what I'm trying to do as a technologist and as a venture capitalist is to recreate the printing press. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So I, I thought we should probably try get to the next part. I know both of us have some passive interest in the swarm, Ethereum swarm team, and we've both given talks about things. And it is very close to the topic that we want to discuss, which is the secure party, multi-party compute. And uh, we know that you did your postdoc under Andrew Yao. And obviously that implies that uh, for a very long period of time, you have been exposed to all this. So, you know, uh, now that you are on the other side of the fence, which is like now you are a person, very much an applied person, and in a sense, making decisions on a meta level on algorithms and taking bets on them. How do you see the evolution of secure multi-party compute from the days where you were like a postdoc to what is currently happening. And uh, give us a context so that the audience can get a view of where things are, where you think, where it was when you were doing a postdoc and being a researcher, where you are right now, your view as a VC and where you are looking forward, say like five years from now into where things would be. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack. Um, maybe a bit of a primer on secure multi-party computation. What is this thing? So it's a secure multi-party computation is a special type or special case of private of uh, private computation, which is a cryptographic technology that allows multiple parties to communicate uh, to compute stuff together without revealing their input. 
So the most classic example maybe is I have a list of uh, people uh, that uh, are part of my party and you have a list of people that are part of your party and we want to know to make sure that there's no people that are in both parties because it's illegal to be in both. So, uh, but I don't want to tell you who's in mine and you don't want to tell me who's in yours. So we run a cryptographic algorithm that has some rounds, it has several rounds. And after running it, we find out who only the output that was asked uh, which is who is the intersection set. But we don't, you don't learn anything about my people who are not in yours and vice versa. This is a, one example of many of secure multi-party computation. This is technology that was invented in the early 80s, or rather science, cryptographic science that was invented in the early 80s by Andy Yao, uh, who got a Turing Award for many other things, including it. Um, he was my favorite computer scientist way before uh, way before I went to do a postdoc with him, but I was lucky enough to go uh, uh, do my postdoc, postdoc with Andy at, at Tsinghua, and it was a really inspirational time. And then another postdoc with the people who uh, built the first application of secure multi-party computation in the world, which is Damgard uh, in, in Aarhus University. There's so much to say about that. But basically, I got front row seats to the development of uh, multi-party computation. Uh, some people know zero knowledge uh, proofs, which are in a different type of private computation. Some people know fully homomorphic encryption, which is yet another thing. Do you think, I mean, the way I would describe it as a secure multi-party compute to be a superset and a zero knowledge proofs could be a subset of multi-party computer in that sense. I think so, I don't like to I don't like to um, get into uh, too much of the weeds because it kind of hides the bigger picture. And okay. I'd say the big picture is that um, this technology of the future allows multiple parties to compute something to to do something together or compute something together without revealing their private data. So it allows you to do account to get accountability without transparency. That I think is the like you should. This is what we should tattoo over our necks or over our foreheads. Accountability without transparency is the main part here because what we always say that we want is we want transparency. But in reality, almost no one wants transparency. Certainly, businesses don't want transparency. What they really want, what is really important for the world to behave, to function most efficiently, is accountability. And this is what this technology and science enable. So we had a very long Twitter thread, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago about zero knowledge LPs and VC funds. And maybe this could be a great example. It doesn't really exist. And I think it's not even algorithmic innovation. It's just applying uh, the, what we already have to uh, the, let's say, the financial value chain. So do you remember what, what the Twitter thread was? So we could... I... Surely yeah, I remember part idea, of it. Yeah, the idea basically was that uh, we were talking about the Saudi, I think, PIF investing in SoftBank and dirty money, clean money. If what happens if a startup or even like employees of a startup, they don't have any kind of transparency into where the funding for the company comes from, right? Usually LPs are most of the times hidden behind uh, a bunch of uh, you know, walls that we don't really know who they are. So the idea with zero knowledge VC was that you have uh, accountability first. So now you remember, right? Yeah. So the point of zero knowledge VC is to 
prove that in the whole supply chain of money that leads to my VC, there's no sources of forbidden money. And that forbidden money could be from anything that we consider unethical. The way we do that is uh, I don't want to, as a VC, I don't want to expose who my investors are and who their investors are and so on. Some of this information I don't have. And a lot of this information is very proprietary. Um, but what I do want is to be able to show like a, a badge, um, like, like coffee, like Fairtrade coffee. Right? So there could be multiple lists, kind of like yeah. Harvard's whitelisting of addresses. You could have multiple lists that have various degrees of you know, ethical stance on you know, what you consider ethical. It's really, it's not an objective measure, right? And then I think uh, when it does scale, if a venture capital company doesn't have the badge, just not having it, it tells you something like why didn't they get the, it's, it's exactly. like the uh, waterproofing so you have IP whatever so please go so so zero knowledge technology in general private computation allows you to do this kind of thing right to do it uh, to achieve the same thing that we in this in the world right now we achieve with transparency so how, how do I do this right now I go to a to an auditor and I tell them please question everyone down the supply chain to make sure no money is coming from a from a blacklisted source. And they go and they question everyone and there's a whole thing that relies on the legal system and it's very human and messy and there's leaks and so on. You can achieve the same exact effect with zero knowledge proofs. Uh, we write a proof, we encode the entire data and then we need to encode it in a way that uh, we can certify that this is the real supply chain of money. So you need some way to um, keep a, a database of who gave money to whom, but it could be it could be cryptographically um, cryptographically encoded. And then I just write a proof to prove that none of my money came from a blacklisted source. I just write a zero-knowledge proof that shows that. And all you learn from that proof is that I that none of my money came from one of these blacklisted sources, but you learn nothing else. Yeah, I mean, what you're kind of describing, you know, imagine an imaginary world if you had a bunch of snarks. And every time each of the different set of criteria, you create the proof, Darwin CS for that particular criteria, and then you publish the proof. So anybody who actually wants to verify can actually verify the provenance of the money that comes through. Yeah. And, and please describe what the snarks are. Oh, uh, can't remember what it stands for. Uh, uh, succinct, non-interactive. Non Notions of proof. Yes, uh, what's the A? We can uh, put it in, but we need to settle this. We'll edit this out. Hashtag <laughs> <laughs> <I> fail. Bloopers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just look it up and um, tell them so we can actually repeat no, it. No, no, it's better as a fail. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think I think the, to zoom out, when you know the abilities of this piece of technology, and then you go around the world, you slowly see that almost that a lot of things that we do in our early, uh, everyday life can be replaced by private computation. And I think this is a property, if you look at, so the way I like to think about this is go back to the 90s and tell people you can communicate something on the internet without any eavesdropper learning it. Uh, and, and you go back to the early 90s and you tell people disability exists out there and they wouldn't believe you. 
They're like, what the hell are you talking about? How can I communicate with you or the, with you or the other side in the other side of the world without anyone being able to eavesdrop? But now we take this for granted now and everyone has WhatsApp and he's using their credit card online and encrypted communication is a thing that's in the mainstream. People believe in it and they believe it works. There's a sense of privacy because there is provable privacy. Uh, the same thing is going to happen now with private computation. Slowly, uh, now it sounds like complete uh, sci-fi, and people wouldn't believe it even if I gave them the algorithm. They wouldn't believe that it really doesn't leak any private data. But slowly, as this technology becomes more and more prevalent and more usable and more easy to use, uh, we're going to see some amazing results from it that are similar to the results that we've seen or comparable to the results we've seen from cryptography. The entire of e-commerce got unlocked by the availability of public cryptography. The entirety of uh, online banking, a lot of the messaging, almost everything we do online on the internet today, all of the value generated, um, you know, a lot of the value generated comes from the availability of asymmetric cryptography. The same thing will happen from secure multi-party computation and other private computation. So I, I'm not sure if this was from your talk or somewhere and you're talking, but uh, zero knowledge proofs and, and secure multi-party computation, they could even encourage users, if they're proven to be really secure, to share even more. Was it from you? Yes, that's, yeah. that's me. So can, can you talk about this? So maybe Facebook as an example. Yes. So a lot of people look at private computation and they say this is privacy technology. And I think this is a really bad take for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons is that end clients don't actually care about privacy, and we see this over and over again. One of the reasons is that just recreating the old models, but with privacy enhanced, is not a really great thing to do business-wise. Um, because the, the, the abilities that exist right now in the, in the world of digital technology are stuff that we are fine, that people are, the users are fine with without privacy. I think the much more interesting ability of private computation is that after private computation is enabled, people will do stuff that they will share data that they wouldn't before. You'd share your DNA and your, um, uh, and your browsing history because sharing it doesn't mean really sharing it. It's stored on your computer and all you share is an encrypted version of it that can't be can't be seen, replicated, replicated or, or explored. Um, there's a really interesting ad market. I've been talking about ad marketplaces, zero knowledge uh, powered ad marketplaces for a long time. Uh, finally, there's a company I'm talking to that actually is doing it called Glimpse, really awesome. Uh, they went through the consensus uh, accelerator right now. And uh, they're doing uh, advertising, um, zero knowledge uh, powered advertising marketplaces. Uh, now, the power of this is not that we take your personal data that right now advertisers are using and we're making it more private. That's not that interesting. The, the interesting thing is that we'll be able to now advertise to you through your browsing history, for example, without you actually sharing it. So, uh, just, to, just for me to understand, are you kind of putting forward a thesis that given where we are right now in the world, uh, there's a bound? to the amount of data that's available for machine learning algorithms. And we've reached kind of a peak. And what your thesis is kind of implying is that imagine tomorrow, if we have secure multi-party compute, there's a new class of data that's available that will enhance the current set of machine learning algorithms to go to the next level, going back to the thesis you were describing. 
A million percent. I think once secure multi-party computation is prevalent and believed by the public, we're going to see more, we're going to see an exponential increase in the amount of data that is shared. And this can be used for advertising, which is like a very for-profit use, and it can be used for drug design, like what Ocean is doing with OpenMind, for example, where we can design drugs based on your DNA. Right now, it's very hard to get people's DNA because it's very secret information. Once we could run machine learning algorithms on it, we'll be able to have an amazing unlock in drug design. In fact, in, in, uh, in calculating taxation, in figuring out people's needs, uh, the set of machine learning data in the future will be basically all data that is out there. So I'm going to challenge you on the last bit, which I'm very curious uh, about, because I have some interest. I've been working on a dynamic data set for Colangiocarcinoma, and one of the things I observed is like the public data sets that's available globally is so restricted, and the data that seems to be available is in the hands of very large corporates, and they have no incentives this is the challenge I have for secure multi-party compute and zero noise proofs. So if you are a party that actually sees no incentive in actually sharing with or without privacy uh, your data, then we have a challenge. We are assuming that you know, the situation remaining the same, if there's more value being created and the value actually is in the right, right direction, the set of parties who have the data, then we have this exponential, uh, you know, uh, exponential exploration of new things, the things that we haven't seen before. My impression so far is like this requires, it probably ties back to the way that you look at governance. Maybe the way you think about governance could be the solution for this kind of problem. The way I'm saying is like foundation one has like access to genomic data set. And so does a lot of other people, but none of them actually have an incentive to allow, I mean, the incentive is not aligned to the patient outcome. Yeah. So. I think it's exactly the opposite. The large strong players are the ones that have the silos of data because they are strong enough to obtain it. Once privacy is enabled, then the availability of data will be much democratized. Uh, I think the most stark uh, use case of this is Ocean with OpenMind. Ocean makes data sets uh, shareable and uh, findable and curatable, and OpenMind allows uh, secret private computation on them. Together with this, you can get a real reflection point in, in medical research, for example, because once I know my DNA stays private, and once I believe in it, this adoption will take another 10 years, but once I believe in it, I will happily give you access, uh, encrypted access or private access to my DNA for the sole purpose of drug design that deals with um, human disease because I'm not actually losing any of my privacy by doing that. Mm -hmm. So once this technology is enabled, anyone in the world basically will be able to calculate on, on, on many people's DNA and drug design will be much sped up and wouldn't be only restricted to the large companies. It would be much more widely available. I wanted to use the stuff we talked about until here to move to this uh, government technology and algorithmic redistribution. I had a feeling that you talked about this before, that um, if we had technologies like zero knowledge, people might allow governments to really get into the details of their financial transactions and business practices. And that might uh, allow everyone, it could be a win-win scenario, that you get taxed for exactly how much you, you owe, and you only pay what you have to pay, nothing more, yeah. right? So. Yeah, let's go back to communism a little bit, right? To each 
what they need and from each what they can give, right? Uh, I think they said it more eloquently. This is, it sounds like a really great idea uh, when you're 18 and then you discover it's a really terrible idea because it doesn't work in practice. And the reason it doesn't work in practice is that you don't have a truthful mechanism. You don't have the right way to find out how much a person needs and how much they can give. You can go ask them and you get all the wrong responses. So you end up delegating this responsibility to some technocrat who decides how much someone can give and how much they need. And it's really low resolution. Uh, Paul Graham has this idea of high resolution fundraising. Why don't we do this for cities? Like my, my, my town, wherever I live, they do everything transparently and they use continuous fundraising, like these con new concepts of mm -hmm. continuous organizations, to continuously raise funds for the activities that they want to do. And it could also be more inclusive, the decision-making, the funding, the data that you need for it. Exactly, so the trick here is not transparency as such, but rather accountability, right? So transparency has, the lim has its limits. Uh, there's only so much data you can ask of people to reveal. And the same with countries and governments, by the way. You can't go to the IRS and audit what the IRS is doing because they're using really, really private data. However, once we move to a private computation-enabled world, you'll be able to account, to hold everyone accountable, every entity accountable to what it is doing. And that means that you'll be able to actually uh, design uh, truthful mechanisms that encourage everyone to, um, to say or to, to reveal their true preferences, their true ability to give and their true needs and you're going to hold the, hold the entire system accountable to its, to its decisions by using private computation. There's actually four parts of this system. It's like I, I try to figure out what this system would actually look like in practice. It requires optimization. It requires public policy. It requires private computation. And it requires a bunch of game theory and mechanism design. It's a very far-reaching uh, idea, but I think it's the only good way to run a government that doesn't fall into the pitfalls that we're seeing right now, which is either a minimal size government or a government that oversteps its boundaries. Yeah, so I guess this could be a very libertarian friendly idea that yeah. uh, if we have full accountability without too much transparency, uh, they, they, they can be proven, uh, I mean, we can prove to libertarians that look, this is exactly how much the government needs to take from us, and they're only taking that for these activities, and that's it. Maybe there's like a whole bunch of black ops that you know we, we exclude from any kind of accountability, but but. Uh, but the more the world is digital, the more, I mean, the black ops can be done with zero knowledge, right? I mean, the more the world is digital, the more accountability you get. And I believe in a very digital future. Mm -hmm. So exactly, I think that this uh, dichotomy, libertarian versus communist, is a thing of the past. I think it won't exist in the future because it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. I mean, in a, in, a, in, a per, in a world with perfect accountability, without need for transparency, the dichotomy between libertarian and and uh, communist goes away. You do have a measure of collectivism. You do need society to decide how much collectivism is important. How much do I want my neighbors and my neighbors' neighbors to not be poor? But, but that's a decision we can make. That's, a, that's not what communists and libertarians are fighting about. In a way, we could just say communism is an archaic 
byproducts or reaction to lack of data and, and accountability. And libertarianism, they say, since we can't be accountable, since we can't hold the authorities accountable, right. yeah. we will do away with the whole thing. And communism say, since we can't trust people to not be greedy assholes, we will take everything from everyone. But it's two extremes that are, uh, I think, solvable using technology. I mean, there's a bunch of social change needed, but it's technology that unlocks this social change. And you know what's even more mind-blowing? By the way, we should enter this galaxy brain kit here. <laughs> mind-blowing. I think if, if you had full transparency into the whole value chain, supply chain of what happened with your money, or if you do contribute or don't contribute this much tax, and you trace it back to what happens to the individual, even the super ultra libertarians, when they see if I, as person A, I don't contribute this much tax, it just, it's, like, it's not exactly butterfly effect, but quite directly, it comes back to me and I lose this much money or I lose my potential for growth. So it, it, it's, it's in a way the same goal. It's just that we're rephrasing it through data and transparency and we show people that look what happens Whereas before we didn't know, we were just like, trust us, give us the money. Yeah, it's hard. We get back to economic tragedies, right? To the tragedy of the commons and um, to the prisoner's dilemma kind of tragedies that we're seeing in society where people don't necessarily agree on, uh, on taking collective action. So collective action is something that needs to be enabled not just by technological means, but by common consensus. And that's an inherently human problem. The problem is we don't have right now the technology to make this human problem easier to resolve. Just, I thought I should ask you this obvious question and being the devil in the room. So you've been talking about zero-knowledge proofs and things like that. We know how efficient it is. And we know from uh, you know, economics and other things that security doesn't come for free and privacy doesn't come for free. So there is a trade-off where we have where we need to figure out like you know, if you, when you were talking about communism, there's an effort that's been spent by the state to actually make sure, you know, nobody owns anything, right? The same applies when we apply computational algorithms to, to produce the proofs to actually provide the same state. So is there a trade-off where we draw a line and say, okay, this is a level of... Accountability without transparency. Yeah, accountability. I learned this from Jason Cresswell. Okay, so accountability without transparency to be at a level where you know it makes sense to have it, or is there like one of them, or it could be like a sh shades of gray in that sense? I'm not sure what's the cost that you're talking about. So it, it, if you actually provide any amount of computation, so so zero knowledge proofs, for example, is computationally very heavy. Similarly, you know, if you think about encryption, encryption is heavy, right? So if you look at any protocols, what effectively is happening is like you, in a pragmatic world, you, you know, draw a line between what is, what is it that you really, really want to encrypt? What is it that you really want proof for? And then as you look at very, very, very large amounts of data, the amount of effort you require to provide proof, so each of them becomes so high that the economic return for that becomes, it's a diminishing return. So it's an exponential yeah. decay in that sense. So I think... I think it's not that expensive, or at least it won't be in the future. If you look at the history of cryptography, of asymmetric cryptography, it was very expensive in the early 90s and before that. And slowly it got cheap enough that right now a lot of what you're doing online is encrypted by default. They don't even ask you, right? I remember this month where Google, where Gmail became SSH by default. 
because they're like, this is cheap enough that we can just deploy it. It's a 1% or a 10% overhead. We might as well go to, it's, it's an X. It's quite massive. If you look at the big data platforms, default, pretty much all of them don't have. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, we assume that a lot of the communication is actually encrypted. <laughs> and mostly, most of the times, it's just authentication happening. They don't even turn on the I mean, SSH, SSH uses encryption. SSH is for connecting to normal machines. SSL is the one, TLS. Yeah. Uh, SSL uh -huh. is the one that we have in the browser. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think the question is not not necessarily about relative cost, but yeah. about absolute cost. Yes. At some point, it's just cheap. I I remember moving from C++ to Python around 2012, and I was like, what the hell is going on here? Why are all these uh, objects so big? Yeah. And why is this so wasteful? And why? what about the 10x, uh, the 10x efficiency decrease? And then I'm like, after a while, I'm like, it doesn't matter because we're saving so much human time in working in Python. It's fine. Our CPUs are strong enough to eat the 2x or 10x that it costs. And if there's a small thing that we need to optimize, we're going to optimize it. It's the same with cryptography. Asymmetric encryption became pretty much standard in almost everything we do. Um, you know, in our WhatsApp and other Telegram and, and, and Gmail and, and so on because it's cheap on an absolute level. I think the same thing will happen with zero knowledge proofs and multi-party computation. It will just take the decade or two. And maybe zooming out, that's my job as a VC. The difference between my job in VC and in academia is in academia, I could think 30 years forward and I don't care about making the profit and getting the timing right. As a VC, I have much more, um, much stronger ammunition, but I need to get the timing right because I need to returns to make returns for my limited partners for my investments, for my investors. What this means is that I need to get the timing of the investments I make exactly right. Should I invest right now in secure multi-party computation startups? Well, it depends on many things. Maybe it's too early, right? The uh, history books are, are full of VCs that invested in the right thing, but too early. Pets.com might be the most auspicious example of a pet delivery food that in the nine, in 99. The same business model makes perfect sense today. So, uh, pet food delivery, right? So, um, my job as a VC is to get timing right. And what's the right timing for private computation for zero knowledge proofs? I'm not. I couldn't. You know, I couldn't tell you for sure. It's on a case by case basis. Uh, but at some point in the future, in one decade or two decades or three decades, we'll have a world where private computation is pervasive and basically all the information that we share is shared with private computation. In, in this part, we, we wanted to uh, bridge one of the concepts that you guys talked about, algorithms eating or software eating the word, to these, the concept of free-ranging algorithms. and. and for me, it seems like software was eating the word, but it was actually the VCs and entrepreneurs who ran the software and, and ran the companies who are eating the word, not, not the actual softwares. So now we have an opportunity for these DAOs or autonomous algorithms to really eat the word. And there are opportunities and risks involved uh, with this trend as with anything else. So first of all, we wanted to hear from you a little bit what you mean by free-ranging algorithms. And, and please tell us when I'm going to be hired by a DAO or algorithm. I'm really excited. So 
free range, free range algorithms. It's mine invented, I invented the term. I don't think I invented the concept. So maybe it's not good. Uh, uh, maybe it's not a good term because you can't get, <laughs> you're getting it wrong. It's a free range algorithms as in free range eggs. Uh, and the point, ranging. no, a free range, free range algorithms. Uh -huh. And the point is algorithms that are in the wild, they're free and they're just out there. You can't, they're not in a hen house. They're not locked up. They are free operators in the world. So I think we need to talk a little bit more about what free range algorithms look like. In fact, I gave a talk with that title. It's available on YouTube. We'll share it Perfect. Uh, but, but maybe uh, to go one step back, Bitcoin is independent of Satoshi. Bitcoin was a fire and forget. If Satoshi didn't exist at all, Bitcoin would still be there. Mm -hmm. And the, the only reason Bitcoin is not a free range algorithm is because it can't mutate and it can't bear children. If you add to Bitcoin the ability to mutate and change and react, then you have gotten, uh, without depending on humans, but rather uh, maybe being, maybe, maybe using humans for its own survival um, and improvement, then you got a free range algorithm. Um, I think always of, I think of uh, uh, Gibson's Neuromancer. If you read Neuromancer, you basically have a, he was amazingly, uh, visionary. I think he predicted a lot of the things in the future. Some of them didn't even happen yet. Um, and I think if you read a Neuromancer's take or Gibson's take in Neuromancer of AI, you exactly see the, the mental shift that I'm pointing out with free range algorithms is that it's the point is not that algorithms are going to live completely separate in a, than, than, than humans in society, but rather algorithms will pay humans and control humans and not the other way around. Now, if you think about it, we already have systems that are human invented, but control humans and not the other way around. The nation state or money or, you know, many such systems don't depend, are, are, are controlling of humans, but are not so much controlled as humans. No one controls the U.S., Trump doesn't control the U.S. No single human controls the U.S. No single institute controls the U.S. However, there is such a thing as the U.S. because we all believe in it. Right? God controls all of us despite it not existing. So humans have been really powerful in creating entities that live separately from them and control them and not the other way around. Yuval Noah Harari pretty much makes this claim in his, in his book, Sapiens. Um, and... And when I think about, about these entities that we create and, and control us, the, f the next uh, logical jump is algorithms. Algorithms can pay, you can run on the blockchain, they can run on the Ethereum blockchain, Ethereum 2.0, whatever, on a, on a scalable blockchain system. And they can pay us to do stuff for them so that you get the best of the two sides of both human and machine. Um, the algorithm makes decisions, it pays you, to do actions for it, just like in Neuromancer, uh, Wintermute mm -hmm. paid the child to hide the key, yeah. right? So that, I think we, we can leave it there and, and have another conversation on this one. We, we want to finish this uh, interview with a really simple question we ask all the guests. What would you do if you had a hundred elots or a hundred billion dollars? Wait, which, which one? You can choose a combination, like two allots and the rest like billions, like 98 billions and two allots. Well, a billion, one billion is enough. I take half a billion. Um, <laughs> I get one billion. I yeah, take one billion and 99 allots. I can do a lot with a billion dollars. Software is very cheap. That's a nice thing. Algorithms are very, very cheap. I can do a lot with a billion. Um, I think I would attack climate change. My, my real overarching goal uh, for years now, which I am not... We're, I'm not attending to enough, but I hope to 
some someday is to try to avert climate change by better governance so I think the big cause of climate change is poor governance tragedy of the Commons run amok mm-hmm. and that we humans have a problem resolving this because our governance technology is not enough I believe if you gave people as a collective human humanity international humanity as a collective the ability to put in to do an Apollo project for averting climate change they would totally go for it but our governance is not strong enough the nation the nation state based governance uh, the religion based governance is not strong enough to to uh, to get this preference into the world mm-hmm. so I think the solution is To better governance is technological I think uh, blockchain has a lot to do with it game theory cryptography all have a lot to do with this um, I think that governance is a lot about redis- uh, about uh, allocating resources mm-hmm. and a co- and collective action that is about the economy it's not about ethics as much and I think that we need to help the humans of the world come together and put the resources in an Apollo type project for the averting climate change. I think this problem is totally solvable using technology and a very wise uh, investment of a large amount of money. We don't need private individuals to give this money. We need to collectively come together to, to allocate these resources. And I think the way to do that is by improving governance technology. Uh, so that's my my interest in collaboration technology in multi-party computation in auctions in game theory in crypto I, that's how I got into crypto by the way I wanted to do to to improve our governance mm-hmm. um, in 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 VC in algorithms a lot of it surrounds improving governance particularly for climate for averting climate change which I think is the one existential threat we have so if I had to Uh, a billion dollars and 99 lads and we're not and I have many many faults but they have very smart partners that I work with that uh, complement my skill set and I have very smart friends and allies I would take 99 of me maybe 10 of me 10 of each of my partners would 10 you, of the smartest people yeah absolutely <laughs> no, no question about it um, I would take these people and have them work on one single purpose which is improving the abilities of, of people to govern themselves to reach consensus and that consensus need to be around allocation of resources for a common good that they decide on or for common you know for common actions that they decide on and I think that is the one thing that enables us to perfectly combat climate change as you always say yourself and I think this leaves uh, lots of uh, open spaces for for us to talk to impact investors and people who are looking at uh, climate change as as their thesis for for their VC yeah there's a blue yard discussion around climate change on the Apollo program well they call it the uh, the Manhattan project for climate change but that's kind of like <laughs> I'm not sure about, that's a great uh, <laughs> Comparison, I want to call it the Apollo project for climate change. They have it wrong. in September. And uh, it's, about, it's more about the material science and, and, and that kind of side. But I think governance has way, has a lot. Once you have the right allocation of resources, everything is possible. But we need to come together to do that rather than every country mm-hmm. trying to grab its own resources. Yeah, absolutely agree. It's kind of like... Don't pollute the planet versus can't pollute the planet. You know, like, don't be evil, can't be evil. I guess we could achieve the same through proper governance mechanisms for climate change. 
Yeah, I think so. I think we can achieve amazing things. We can colonize Mars. We can, you know, we can do, we can end world poverty easily, much easily than the other two things. We can do incredible things if we just are able to solve economic tragedies, mm-hmm. the, you know, the tragedies of the commons that surround us. And that's a pure governance question if I've ever seen one. Yeah. Uh, Elad, thank you for everything. Where can people find you online if you want to be found? So in Twitter, I'm Verbin E. In Gmail, I'm elad.verbin at Gmail. And in general, just Google my Was name and a lot of my... and a lot of my uh, just google my name and uh, I'm out there a lot of my talks are online and I try to be very approachable for the audience if you have any voice messages you can do that quite easily we're using Anchor you send us your questions and we'll try to get the answers from Elad maybe on his next appearance thanks everyone thank you Anish and thanks to Zanir again for tolerating us thank you very much Thank you, Nima. Thank you, Anish. Thank you, Zanya. Bye-bye and see you next week. Pretopia.fm <laughs>